So John chapter 10, verse 22 is where we're picking it up here this morning. We got through the first part of this chapter last week and a great passage where Jesus was giving this great illustration of sheep and the shepherd. Jesus made two great proclamations there in John chapter 10. He said, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. He says that he is the way into the sheepfold to being a part of the family of God. And he is the good shepherd by which when we come in, we find the one that cares for us, loves us. And so he's that good shepherd. And we, of course, are the sheep. We're the ones that uh, he has made and he's brought us into that pasture with him. And so we're moving on now in verse 22 and we're skipping ahead a little bit time frame chronologically not chronologically but in time and i'll explain that a little bit here because it says in verse 22 now it was the feast of dedication in jerusalem and it was winter and jesus walked in the temple in solomon's porch then the jews surrounded him and said to him how long do you keep us in doubt if you are the christ tell us plainly and jesus answered them i, I told you and you did not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. I'll stop right there. So here we see something interesting. John identifies, again, another kind of season, an event going on. It's the Feast of Dedication. Now, Feast of Dedication is something that took place in, in December. It's what we call today Hanukkah, all right? And so it's December right now, but from chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 10, verse 21... We've been dealing with a similar time frame where it was the Feast of Tabernacles and then Jesus had been ministering to the people there in Jerusalem after the Feast of Tabernacles, all within the same time. Feast of Tabernacles took place in late September to early October. So we're jumping at about two to two and a half months now from verse 21 to verse 22. In other words, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, had probably left, gone back, but now has come back to Jerusalem where he's re-engaging the Jews now that are there, the, the, the religious leaders as he's talking to. And they come, and it tells us here, they come and surround him. So this is now uh, another event that's taking place from what we've just been talking about in John 10. It's all going to kind of connect as we see here. But what we're going to be looking at in this chapter really is this unbelief of the religious leaders. Unbelief. We're going to be seeing three things. We're going to see the reasons for unbelief, verses 22 to 27. We'll see the consequences of unbelief, verse 28 to 31. And then the folly in unbelief, verses 32 to verse 42. Now, what's interesting is that, as we'll talk a little bit more too, is that this is kind of like the last sort of hurrah for Jesus in Jerusalem ministering to this crowd that was primarily the critics of Jesus. Sadly, these religious leaders should have been the ones that were proclaiming the coming of Jesus. Here's the Messiah. Here's the one that we've been waiting for. But they were the staunch um, ones that were objecting Jesus, that were going against Jesus, being critical of the work of Jesus. And they should have been the ones that were all pointing people to Jesus, but they're not. They're filled with unbelief. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through this chapter. So, Here's the Feast of Dedication. Now, now, it's interesting because this is the only time that the Feast of Dedication is mentioned in the Bible. It's right here in John 10, verse 22. Feast of Dedication was not one of the main, you know, feasts of the Lord that were instituted by God, instructed by God. We see in Leviticus the different feasts that God was giving to his people Israel to commemorate and to follow. But Feast of Dedication came 
much later. This was something that took place between the intertestamental periods from between the Old Testament and into the New Testament. See, what had happened was um, Antiochus Epiphanes, this Syrian ruler and king, came up and, and sort of attacked Jerusalem or came against Jerusalem and desired to kind of take over and really kind of Hellenize, which meant kind of bringing this Greek culture into, into Jerusalem there. And, and in so doing, he wanted to kind of alter the worship of God that was taking place in the temple and, and among the Israelites, the Jews there. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did is, is he even came in with a pig and he put it there on the altar of God in the temple and offered this up as a sacrifice to, to their God, Jupiter and, and, and Zeus and, and just this kind of desecration of the, of the temple. In fact, it was the abomination of desolation that Jesus had kind of, or sorry, that Daniel had pointed to in the book of Daniel and that the Antichrist also is going to do. But so here's Antiochus Epiphanes doing this. But what happened is that here's this man, Judas Macca, Maccabeus. Um, Judas Maccabee, am I saying that right? Why did I just, Maccabeus. Salson blanked on that. Judas Maccabeus kind of saw this going on and, and he led a, a revolt against that. He's like, we're not going to let this happen in the temple. And so they fought back. It was known as the Maccabean Revolt. And this happened in 165 BC. And in so doing, they, they purified, they restored the temple, they drove out all this kind of wickedness going on. And so this became commemorated in the Feast of Dedication, all right? Also known as the Festival of Lights, because again, the, 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 they allowed miraculously this, this lamp, you know, to keep burning there in the temple. And they didn't have enough supplies to really do it, but God. God preserved the little supplies they had to keep this, this lamp burning and the candles burning there in the, in the temple. And so it's just a work of God. And so this is what's being commemorated here. And here's Jesus now back in Jerusalem to kind of follow and observe this feast of dedication. It says he's walking in Solomon's porch. Now Solomon's porch was this kind of covered um, colonnade in a sense. There's a picture of it. God or a, a, a a depiction of it. And it sat on the east side of the temple, just outside the court of the Gentiles. And it was a common place that people would go and walk through. Rabbis would be walking through there and oftentimes teaching. It was big enough for crowds to gather. In fact, Peter gave a sermon from there in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. And so here's this um, colonnade or porch that Jesus is, is walking through right now. And it gave opportunity for him to kind of meet with these Jews and begin to, again, further press them on this issue of, of accepting him, of believing in him, which is what John's writing this gospel all about, that people would believe that Jesus is the son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life in his name, right? And so here's Jesus, and, and it tells us something interesting, because it tells us in verse 22 that it was, when, anybody, somebody, when was this? Winter, tells us it's winter. Now that for, you know, in Israel, a little bit different than what we oftentimes picture as winter, but still gets cold. It's kind of this season where it's just not as nice and sunny. It's kind of dreary and, and oftentimes cold. And so here's, I think, a, a fitting picture or depiction of what's really going on in this spiritual climate now in Israel. Because here's the Jews. It's nearing the end of Jesus' ministry. It's December, and Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem in the spring at Passover, where he's going to offer himself on the cross as that sacrificial Passover lamb, right? So it's nearing the end of his ministry, but what's happening is that even though Jesus for the last few years has been ministering, the people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, the ones that should have been accepting him, are pushing back. 
And they're left in the cold in a sense. Their hearts have been cold to Jesus. They haven't been accepting. They haven't been, they haven't been open to the things of Jesus. And so they're in this season in a sense where it's like winter, dreary, cold. They're not receiving the light of Jesus Christ, warming their hearts, softening their hearts to be receptive of what he has for them. So I think it's a very fitting picture that we see going on right now. And look at verse 24 again. It says this. That the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt or in suspense? Ultimately is what they're saying here. How long do you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I, I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me. So as Jesus is walking about, he's surrounded. He's, he's in a sense swarmed, right? Uh, you ever been sworn? I remember, I remember, man, I was sworn by a bunch of fifth graders one day that were trying to take me down. And it was terrifying, man. But enough about last week. That was, that was a whole other story. But uh, it's not fun when you're sworn. And that's kind of what the Jews are doing here because they're, they're posing a threat to Jesus. This isn't just, let's, let's come around Jesus and let's try to get some answers. They're, they're in a threatening manner, swarming him, surrounding him. And, and they're asking that question, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. But you see, they're not, they're not looking for truth here. They're wanting Jesus to confess this so that they can go about and carry out their agenda. They're just looking for a reason to continue on with this narrative that they have that He's our enemy. He's not a God. In fact, he's kind of, you know, keeping us from doing what we want to do. And so let's find out if he can just admit this because now that's going to allow them to carry out really their agenda and that is to kill him. To kill him. You know, it's a sad thing because it's what many people do today in a sense where they've already made up their minds about Jesus. And so... They just try to validate their opinions by giving some kind of flimsy reasons or excuses why not to accept or believe in Jesus. Well, you know, if Jesus were really God, then why did he allow my frog to die when I was seven years old? I just can't accept a godly life. Or somebody might say, well, Jesus, I mean, he's just kind of a part of that toxic masculinity culture. I mean, he's such a 12 people have fallen. They were all men. Where's the woman here? Like, come on. I mean, how can I follow a person? And there's things that people throw out there. Just to validate their reasons for not accepting him. They're not looking for truth. They just want to kind of find reasons to continue on in that same narrative that they have about Jesus. And how we need to be those that stop trying to find reasons to doubt Jesus and simply accept the truth that we do know about Jesus. And as Jesus told us in John 8 verse 32, that when you accept that truth and know the truth, then what's the truth going to do? It's going to set you free. How about that? And there's a lot of people that aren't being set free because they don't want to accept the truth. They want to just find reasons to doubt. But here's the thing. When you begin to step out and you begin to accept that truth, suddenly you begin to realize, oh man, Jesus really is all that. He is who he said he is. And he's, he's doing a work in my life, changing my life, and he's setting me free. There's a blessing that comes as we begin by faith to step out and to accept Jesus. But these people were unwilling to do so. And so Jesus... He's, what does he say there in verse 26? He says, listen, I've told you already. I mean, Jesus hasn't been playing, playing coy with these guys. Jesus hasn't been beating around the bush. He's made it very clear who he is, where he's come from. He said that time and time again. And in fact, there's been other episodes where the Jews have been ready to stone him for it. They know what he's been saying. He's not been playing coy. 
He's not been keeping them in suspense. They've just not been opening their heart to the truth. And so now they want one more reason for, one more, one more thing for Jesus to just openly admit that he's the Messiah so that they can come along and say, see, he's blasphemy. He's making himself God. That's grounds for stoning and killing. And so that's all they're looking to do. They want to just simply carry out their agenda. And so they're trying to find a reason for Jesus to, you know, give them a reason to do, do so. But notice what Jesus says there. Not only does he say, I've told you, but he says there in verse 25 that the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Say, listen, everything that I've been doing has shown already very clearly that I'm of God. How could anyone do these things if that was not so? In fact, Peter himself said in Acts 2 verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter said, listen, the very works that Jesus has done, those miracles and signs, they've all attested to the fact that he's of God, that this is from God. And so Jesus is saying the same thing here, the works that I do show that I'm of God. But they were unwilling to see that. They didn't want to Add that up and say, yeah, this shows clearly that he's of God. So Jesus says, the works speak for themselves. Now, let me turn that around on us here and ask, what do, what do our works say about us? Are our works pointing people to God? Or are they seeing the things that we're doing and they're running away from God saying, I don't want anything to do with this stuff if that's what it is. In fact, somebody was telling me in between our services here, a story of, uh, of Nelson Mandela. I don't know if it's true, but this person told me. I won't tell you who told me in case it's not true. Well, it was Ken Andrews. So if it's wrong, you can just go ahead and blame him for this. But he said, you know, Nelson Mandela was kind of seeking out Christianity and he wanted to explore a bit. And he went to a church and the church was all white, wouldn't let him in. And he just kind of, that was his experience of Christianity. He didn't want anything to do it. He's like, I'd become a Christian if I could find a christian and so what do our works say about us are we revealing who jesus is are we pointing people to god or are people seeing us living in a way where they're saying i don't want anything to do with christianity that's what it looks like what do our works say in fact james would say in james 2 verse 17 18 thus also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead but someone will say you have faith and i have works show me your faith Without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, now a lot of people look at that verse and they, they will try to twist that around to say it, it's by our works that we're saved. That's not what James is saying here. He says when you're saved, it's going to reveal itself by how you live, what you do. Your works are going to show that you're saved. Just as Jesus' works are showing who he really is, that he is of God and that this is from God. So he says, I'm not hiding anything here from you guys. The problem is that you simply don't want to believe. Now, why weren't they getting it? Well, Jesus goes on to explain why. Next year, look at verse 26. It says this. Jesus saying, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus is, is picking this thought up from what he had said a couple months earlier when he was there in Jerusalem, when he's given that whole illustration of the shepherd and the sheep, the relationship of us with Jesus. 
And now he ties it in again. He says, listen, the reason that you are not believing is because you're just not one of the sheep. Now, that poses a bit of a dilemma for some. Were they not sheep because that was predetermined by God? Did God not give them an opportunity to be sheep? Or are they not sheep because they've chosen not to be sheep and to follow the shepherd? Well, I believe certainly that they had every opportunity to be sheep. In fact, Jesus said there in John 10 verse 9, he says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. What does Jesus say? I'm the door. If anyone enters by me. So Jesus is giving that opportunity for all people to come in. Here's the way though. You got to come in through Jesus. Do you want to be a sheep? You want to be a part of the, the fold of God? Then you got to come in through Jesus. But everyone has an opportunity to be a sheep. This isn't predetermined. This isn't something that Jesus isn't saying, I'm the door. If anyone comes in and then people try to come in, say, oh, no, sorry. I didn't mean you. Yeah, you weren't chosen. You're not one of the elect. You're not predetermined to be. No, sorry. I meant, I meant the other people. Jesus isn't doing that. If anyone enters by me, he says, they'll come in and they'll find good pasture and be part of the family of God. So the problem was not that they weren't chosen, but that they hadn't chosen jesus and desire to follow him they didn't want to listen to his voice they want to listen to their own voice they want they didn't want a shepherd over them they wanted to be the shepherds of israel they wanted to be the one calling the shots they didn't want to have to come in line with another shepherd they were unwilling to receive jesus john 1 12 says that as many as received him To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name again. As many as received him. It's not about not being chosen. It's about are we choosing Jesus? Are we looking to Jesus to find salvation and life in him? Because all that come receive life in him by believing in him. But they're not of the sheep because they've not chosen Jesus. And they're missing out. Now, how do you know if a person is saved? Whether a person listens and follows the voice of Jesus. It's walking in obedience to him. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Now, that's an important distinction Jesus makes. First of all, people that are saved are going to want to follow Jesus. They're going to want to listen to the voice of Jesus. They're going to say, I want to do what he's calling me to do, not what I'm choosing to do. A sheep has a shepherd because they know I'm going to be lost. I'm going to be in trouble on my own. I want to follow my shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. So we listen to him. We follow him. But notice here too, it's about being in relationship with him. Because Jesus says something important there. He says, they know my voice. Or yeah, they hear my voice and I know them. Verse 26, look at that. Or sorry, verse 27. They hear my voice and I know know them that's an important distinction because it's not just about knowing god there's a lot of people that will proclaim to be christians and they'll say oh sure i've been in church before oh i know all about god but they are not in relationship with god they're not coming through jesus they're not they've not been abiding in jesus been in relationship with him and and so when jesus says and i know them now In a general sense, we know that to be true for everybody, that Jesus knows everybody. He knows everything about you. 
He knows you better than you know yourself. So in a general way, yes, Jesus knows everybody. But when he says, and I know them, he says that in a way of it being relational. I know them in the sense that we're operating in communion together with one another. We're walking in relationship together. There's something more than just a, a head knowledge. There's, there's, there's life being spent together here. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's following Jesus and, and being in relationship with Jesus. And, and there's that distinction that's made through the Bible. Paul makes that distinction often in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Known by God. And then in Galatians 4, 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So Paul kind of clarifies that even in his own sentence there. But now after you have known God, or rather, here's what's more important, that you're known by God. Because a lot of people will proclaim to say, oh, I know about God, but are you known by God? In other words, are you walking in a relationship with him? That's what Jesus desires to be in relationship with him. And that's important because there will come a time when many are going to think that they've done enough to merit eternal life. That, that they're in because they're, they're, they're going to heaven simply because, you know, they prayed a couple times or they've been to church before. But for many, there's going to be a different outcome. Because Jesus himself pointed out in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, saying this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I, have never, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are heavy words right there. I never knew you. Now, understand something. It's not about what you've done. It's about, have you put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged him? As your savior. Are you in Jesus and Jesus in you? Meaning that he is your life. Because some are going to be very surprised in that day where they think, you know, oh, I'm in. But the problem is they've been relying on religion and haven't been in relationship with Jesus. Jesus is all about relationship rather than religion. Religion is man's attempt to try to reach God and be right with God. But we understand we can never do enough. That's why Jesus came and died on a cross. So that he could pay the penalty and the price for our sin. And that he could bring us in into right standing with God through his righteousness. He took all of our sin and exchanged that with his righteousness. So that we could have a right standing with God and be in relationship with him. That's why Jesus came. We're all about relationship, not religion. And many are going to come before the Lord in that day. As they walk in eternity thinking, oh, I'm good because, well, I've been going to church or... I've read my Bible once in a while, but they've not been in a relationship with Jesus. They've not been following Jesus. They've not been listening to Jesus. And they've been relying upon their works and not his work. Now, understand something here. Those words, I never knew you, don't get spoken to those that have put their trust in Jesus, though they may have slipped up, made mistakes, faltered along the way. There's a lot of people that think, I got to come in strong. I got to come in perfect or else maybe he's going to look at me and say i never knew you it doesn't get spoken to those that have put their trust in jesus understand something here Uh, i'm not perfect i make mistakes and i know 
a lot of you make mistakes, all right? We're not perfect. You're not perfect. Little truth pill for you there today, in case you were thinking otherwise. But we're not relying upon our perfection. We're relying upon the only perfect one that there is. That's Jesus. So he's the one that upholds us. He's the one that, as Jude says, keeps us from stumbling and will present us as what? Faultless. He does the work. So if you're in Christ today, you're walking in relationship with him. These are words you never have to fear. Depart from me, I never knew you. No, I'm in Christ. I'm in relationship with him. That's a great, glorious truth for us here today. And notice the promise that comes to those that are in Jesus as we move on. We've seen the reasons for unbelief, but look at the consequences now of unbelief. And we're going to see it in a way, kind of a reversal. Jesus is going to point out the blessings that we have. But these are blessings for those that believe. And so we see the alternative, the consequences of unbelief. Look at verse 28 here. It says this. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So to those who receive him and follow him, he promises this, eternal life, eternal hope, and eternal safety and security. This is what Jesus says himself right here. This is what we have. Think about that, eternal life. That means that your life here, when you are in Christ and Christ is in you, that means that your life here never expires. Think about that. There's a lot of things that expire, right? A lot of things that don't last. But our bodies don't last, right? Just look to your neighbor right now and realize, yes, these things don't last. They don't hold up too well. But here's the thing. Life in Jesus never expires. We just graduate from this life into greater life. And guess what? These bodies do get resurrected. They do get restored to where we are clothed with our eternal body, our eternal dwelling that lives forever. We have eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. That's a great promise and blessing that we have for being in Jesus Christ. And we have eternal hope. means that nothing can happen to you as a child of God. You never have to fear what the outcome will be of your life because Jesus says, and you shall never perish. You know, there's a lot of people that live as Christians, sadly, with kind of a, a, a worry and a fear of like, is this going to be enough? A- am I going to make it? Am I going to, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I'll get there. And I talk to a lot of people that are quick to claim themselves to be Christians. And I ask them, you know, are you going to heaven? Why are you going to go to heaven? And they're like, well, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I just hope I've done enough. But the problem is, there's no assurance there. But Jesus says, if you're in me, there's eternal hope. You will never perish. You don't have to worry about that. As a believer, we should be full of confidence and assurance of where you're going. That's not, that's not pride because you're so great. It's understanding that I'm weak, but he is strong. He's the one that gets me in. And so that's where my dependency is. And so I can have an assurance and a confidence that when I die, I'm going to heaven. You might think, well, that's, I mean, why do you think you're, well, it's not about me. It's about Jesus and what he's done for me. That's what Jesus is declaring here. It shall never perish. But Romans 
8, verse 38 to 39 says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then not only do we have eternal life, eternal hope, but we have eternal safety and security. That means that nothing can rob you of this salvation when you are, as Jesus says, in the Father's hand. That's exactly where you are. As a child of God, you are placed in the Father's hand where he is holding you, where he is upholding you, and he is protecting you from any outside danger. Nothing can come in and rob you of that salvation. There's a lot of people that live through life wondering like, have I lost my salvation? Has something kind of robbed me of that salvation? Nothing can do that. There's eternal safety and security. In and through Jesus. But here's the thing. There's safety and security as long as we're in the Father's hand. See, there's a lot of people that teach this idea of eternal security where, well, eternal security is for those that are, you know, uh, the elect chosen of God. And he just chooses you. And so you're saved. And nothing you do will ever change that, that you're eternally secure. Okay. uh, I get that. I understand that. But I also understand that I'm eternally secure as long as I am in the Father's hand, meaning I'm abiding in Jesus. I'm, I'm in relationship with Jesus. See, there are those that hold to this eternal security idea where they think, well, I'm, I'm one of the elect, and so now that I'm saved, I can just go ahead and do whatever I want. I can just go ahead and do whatever I want, and that's fine, because I'm, I'm one of the elect, and I'm saved, right? The thought of eternal security should not cause us to think we can do what we want. Now that we're saved, in fact, McDonald, the commentator, said this, we desire to live a holy life, Not out of fear of losing our salvation, but out of gratitude to the one who died for us. The doctrine of eternal security does not encourage careless living, but rather it's a strong motive for holy living. That's exactly what it should do for us. Say, I want to keep on living for Jesus. I want to keep on abiding for Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We're in the Father's hand. We're safe and secure. Nothing can rip us out of the Lord's hand. But remember what we talked about last week? What's one of the characteristics of sheep? What do sheep like to do? They like to wander. They like to wander. And so there's nothing stopping a sheep from saying, I want to venture off and kind of go my own way here. I'm going to do my own thing. And leaving the Father's jumping out of the Father's hand. Nothing can remove you except you yourself removing yourself from the Father's hand. And sheep can tend to wander. And there's no security for those that have gone their own way. There's only security when you are abiding. I am safe and secure when I'm abiding in Jesus. But if you wander, well, you're kind of on your own outside of the Lord's hand. And then the question is, were those people ever truly, really saved to begin with? We don't know. That's a question that only God can answer. But Jesus is promising us something here. Receive him, believe in him, and you'll have eternal life, eternal hope, and eternal safety and security as you're abiding in him, living in him. And notice the reference to the unity of Jesus and the Father. He says in verse 28 that you'll be in Jesus' hand. But then in verse 29, he says you're in the Father's hand. In other words, it's kind of like he's revealing that him and the Father are one. In fact, in the next verse, verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. And that's one of the clear statements of the deity of Jesus right there. Where Jesus says very clearly, I and my Father are one. That he's proclaiming himself to be fully God. That they are one in essence. The deity of Jesus gets so misunderstood, especially among cults today. Now, here's one thing that Jesus is not saying. 
All right? And this is where things get twisted around. Jesus is not saying here that he is the father, as some would like to say. In fact, this was a teaching that was brought into play back in the third century by a theologian, a, a priest by the name of Sibelius, who taught that there were different modes of God, that, that God was single and indivisible. And so God, at different times, would reveal himself in the Father, or reveal himself in the Son, or reveal himself in the Holy Spirit. But they were, they were one God, individual, and never the same, in the sense that they were not three distinct persons. So this is also called uh, modalism. Where people believe that there's one God and he only reveals himself in, in one way at a time, in a sense. And there's different offshoots of that today. One is Pentecostals or kind of an offshoot with similar teaching like that. So Jesus is not saying that he is the Father. No, he's, he's distinct. They're one in essence, but they're two separate people. And here's another thing that Jesus is not saying that some people like to twist and say this is what he's saying. He's not saying that they are one simply in purpose. Some people say Jesus is only claiming really that he's just there to carry out the will of the Father and that they have a common purpose and agenda. And so that's why they're, they're one, because they're carrying out the same work. That's not what Jesus is saying. No, he's simply saying that he is God. In fact, if he's not saying that, if he's only saying, yeah, listen, guys, don't fret. I'm just here kind of carrying out the work of God. I'm not really claiming to be God. Well, the Jews wouldn't be doing this. What we see next in verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. See, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew that he's not claiming just simply to be one in purpose. They know that he's claiming to be God. And that's why they're picking up stones to stone him. Because this, in their minds, was blasphemous. They didn't see Jesus that way. Again, their heart had become cold to him. And they're missing out. The, the, here's the consequence of unbelief that we see. They're missing out now on the life that he has for them, on eternal life, eternal hope, and eternal safety and security. Well, let's look at now, just in closing, this folly in unbelief. Verse 32, Jesus answered them. He said, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, they failed to see all the works that Jesus did. And, and they were blinded from the truth. Kind of blinded by their own legalism and religiosity. Because in so doing, they became so tight that they were failing to see this work of God. They got so caught up in the letter of the law, but completely missed this genuine work of God. That's the folly of unbelief. You miss seeing the greatness of God. Jesus said many Good works, I have shown you. Jesus had done nothing but good. He had been healing sicknesses. He, he allowed the, the lame to walk. He's given sight to the blind. He's fed the multitudes. It's kind of though, as though Jesus is saying, for which of these? And notice he says that this is my father that does these things. I've shown many good works I've shown you from my father. It's as though Jesus is saying, which of these works of God is it that you want to kill me over? Put him back in their face. Which of these works of God is it that you want to kill me over? See, these men are so wrapped up in religion, they miss the beauty and glory of the Son of God on display that's right in front of them. They're like a person who visits the Grand Canyon and is so 
distracted by the potholes in the parking lot that they fail to see one of the great wonders of the world. It's exactly what these religious leaders are doing. They can't see how amazing Jesus is. They think Jesus is a man who's trying to make himself God. When in reality, he's God who made himself a man to do that work for us that we can do for ourselves. And his display of power and grace can only be described by God who has become man for you and for me. And so because of this religion, because of their own selfish purposes, they were failing to see just this great glory of the very Son of God right before them. And here they are picking up stones, ready to stone him. Verse 34 says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's? And, and if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So here Jesus quotes from Psalm 82 verse 6 where there were these judges now that God had appointed to carry out now the work of God and even decisions that were determining the fate of other people. But these judges were appointed to, to carry out just work but they were not doing so. So Jesus is in a sense, bringing these people up because he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying, if you accept these men as being gods, because that's what your very word, the very scriptures say that they are, that they are gods. And if you accept that, even though they were unjust judges, how is it that you're not accepting me as the very son of God who's done nothing but good before you? So he's making this argument from the lesser to the greater before them. Goes on to say, verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father's in me and I in him. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Again, Jesus, though he's just a few months away, nothing is going to prevent him from carrying out the work of God at the set appointed time that God has. He's operating on a divine timetable. Jesus will be sacrificed on the Passover to be a great picture of that final sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So he escapes the other hand. But notice what Jesus is doing here. And I want you to grasp this here in this whole chapter because here he is back in Jerusalem. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, those guys have had their chance. I'm not going back to them. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. But Jesus is giving his very enemies, his, his greatest opposers and critics, he's giving them one more opportunity to open their hearts to him. He comes pleading with them one more time out of grace and love for them. Though they've been trying to kill him already. He says, listen guys, if you just, and notice what he's saying there in verse 37. Listen, you don't have to believe what I'm saying, but at least believe the works that I do. That you might see that God is here. That God is behind this. That God is using me in these things. And he's just pleading with them out of love and grace that he would just open their hearts to them. Open their hearts to him. And that's the question for us. Have we opened our heart to Jesus? Have we accepted Jesus as our good shepherd, our savior. Have we come into that door? Have we been holding back? Have we been hardening our heart? Have we been, have we been listening to the voice of Jesus? Because Jesus is calling out. If anyone enters, 
by me. It will go in and out and find good pasture. And he's even given that opportunity to his critics. He's given that opportunity to all people. Have we received that? Have we accepted to as many as received him? To them he gave the right to be called children of God. What a great invitation. What a great gift. But they were not willing. It goes on to say verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Jesus will not come back into Jerusalem until he comes in, riding on donkey, preparing to go to the cross. This is kind of like that one last effort to bring these people in, but they were not willing. And we never know when we will have that opportunity. If, if our hearts have been closed off, if we've been putting those things off, of accepting Jesus. You never know when you'll have another opportunity. Because your life could just be taken in a flash, in a heartbeat, in a second. We never know. Have you been holding back? Because Jesus is saying, today's the day. Open your heart. Receive him. Don't let unbelief get in the way. We've seen the reasons for it, the consequences of unbelief, the folly in unbelief. Don't let that be said of you. Like I said, John's being written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to move into just a time of, of response and worship and enter into a time of communion. And that's the great thing here is that we get to remember what Jesus has done for us here in communion. The bread representing the body of Christ broken on the cross. The blood representing, or the, the juice representing the blood of Jesus. Yes, we're drinking juice, not blood. The juice, simply a picture of that blood that was shed by Jesus. The Bible says it's for the remission, the forgiveness of our sins. Have you received the forgiveness of sins today? And we can we partake of this out of joy and gratitude for the life that Jesus has given us, the work he's done for us. This isn't about us trying to earn our way. This doesn't save us. This is to recognize the work that Jesus did to save us. He's done it all. He's done it all. To where now there's forgiveness. There's cleansing. Our sin no longer is held against us, but we're set free from that. So we might experience the life Jesus has for us. And I pray that you're experiencing that. If you're here today and you don't know that life in Jesus, that eternal life and eternal hope, that assurance of salvation. Open your heart to Jesus today. Invite him in to be your Lord and Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and to come in and be your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, the Bible says that you're made new. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All that are in Christ receive that. Would you receive that today? So let's stand together. And, and as we worship... I'm going to invite you to come and just partake of these emblems of communion. There's a station up here on the stage and one in the back as well. And you can partake of that, take it back to your seat and just take that on your own before the Lord in thanks.